Well, surprise, it's me, I'm back. Um, <laughs> you're stuck with me all service today. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 4. And we're actually going to jump right in. I have a lot to say this morning, and I want to be respectful of time and not just ramble on and on. So Mark chapter 4, we're going to be continuing our series through Mark's Gospel, and we're going to focus on the first 20 verses. And as most of us probably know, it's crucial to know context when you're reading the Bible. When you're reading Scripture, you need to know the verses around it and what's going on in the story. So here, we're going to take a moment and we're going to look at Jesus' ministry just from Mark's account. So Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, up until Mark chapter 4, and what's going on in Jesus' ministry. So there's kind of two things here that just to recap, Jesus is healing many people, both physically and spiritually. In Mark chapter 1, verse 32 to 39, if you want to turn the page and go there, that's fine. This is what we read. That evening at sundown, they brought Jesus, all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. We'll just pause there. Jesus opens the door. The whole city is there. That, that's just, that's insane. It's an insane amount of people. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. That's the physical healing. And he cast out many demons, the spiritual healing. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there Jesus prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Further in that chapter, Mark chapter 1, verse 40, we read that Jesus heals a leper by actually touching him, which in that culture, you didn't do that. Lepers were deemed uh, physically and spiritually unclean. And Jesus touches the leper and heals the leper. In Mark chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus heals a paralyzed man who is lowered through the ceiling of a roof where Jesus is preaching because there was no room for them to get this man to Jesus because of, of a great crowd. In Mark chapter 3, which I think Paul Nelson spoke about last week, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand without using anything other than his words. So the first thing here, Jesus is healing many people, many, many people, physically and spiritually. The second thing we learn up until this point in Mark chapter 4 is that Jesus pro is proclaiming that he is Lord. He has the authority. The, in the story of the paralyzed man, he forgives his sins, Mark 2 uh, verse 5. Last week we looked at Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in Mark chapter 3 towards the end, he has power over demonic forces. And this is really important to note. As a result of these miracles and these claims and the things that Jesus is doing, wherever Jesus was, a crowd followed him. Sometimes I feel like we just don't understand the sheer volume of the people who are following Jesus. When we read of stories of like the 5,000 when he feeds them, in my mind, I, I can't picture 5,000 people. I just think of maybe 100 or, or 500. But there's thousands of people following Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse 7, he says, this is what Mark says, Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. And we're going to pick up 
in Mark chapter 4, and let's read it together. Let's read the first nine verses. Mark 4, verse 1 to 9. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. And we'll pause here for just a second. Again, we see that a great crowd is following Jesus. And it was large enough that he needed to get out into the Sea of Galilee and preach from a boat. Now that was his stage. And interestingly enough, I'm not a science guy, so maybe Nick Camelloni could better describe this, but sound travels further and faster across water, making it a natural microphone for Jesus. And maybe some of you have experienced this strange phenomenon before, whether you're sitting on the shore of a beach or a lake, and you're hearing people talking, and you're looking around, and you're like, there's no one near me. And then you see people out in the ocean or in the water, and you can hear their conversation. It's this strange phenomenon. So if you're going to gossip about anybody, don't do it in the water, because they'll hear you if they're on the shore. Just kidding, don't gossip at all. That was a joke. So again, I love the fact that Jesus knew this. He knew that the sound was a natural microphone and he could actually address the crowd and they could hear him. And I just love that because I just think even being at creation with, with God the Father, he knew how the natural world worked. Like Jesus knew this. So let's, let's keep reading here. And Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teachings he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we're going to stop here. We're going to hang out on these couple of verses for a few minutes. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Or if you want to be accurate, put yourself in their sandals. Jesus is healing people. He's overpowering spiritual, demonic forces. He's claiming to be Lord. He has a large crowd following him. And he takes the time right here to talk about what? farming, planting seeds. Now this story, it's not an extraordinary story to the crowd. Most of them would know the obvious thing that you need a good soil to grow good yielding crops. That, that's a result of planting in good soil. And just to put it into perspective in, in nowadays, it's imagine that New Village Church, imagine we hosted a huge evangelistic outreach and we had thousands of people sitting out on our church field waiting to listen and hear the gospel. And imagine I was the guest preacher. And this is how I addressed the crowd. And, and you as a church member, you as a Christian, what would you think of this? If I addressed the crowd and I said this, Listen! Behold, there are plentiful pizzerias around. If you want a crispy crust, make sure you go to Mama's. If you're looking for something close by, behold, there's La Grova. For an Italian-themed restaurant experience with cheese-stuffed garlic knots, there's Michael Anthony's. If, you're, if you want pizza that will supply 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, there's Costco. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, 
That would be pretty ridiculous. And I would hope as Christians, you'd look at me and think, what is he talking about? These people don't need to hear about pizza. They know pizza. If you're on Long Island, you know pizza. We're surrounded by pizzerias. And I'm going to stop talking about pizza because I'm getting really hungry. But the simple truth is the people knew about farming. And the Bible doesn't really say, this is just kind of me gleaning into the scripture, the disciples must have thought, Jesus, what a wasted opportunity. You have this crowd following you, and you're talking to them about farming? What? And I'd hope if that was me talking, you'd say the same thing. What are you doing? What a, what a missed opportunity. That's probably how the disciples felt. This parable wasn't breaking news or, or wasn't breaking any, any ground or news for those listening. They would have nodded along with everything Jesus said because they already knew it. In fact, looking at this parable, the only exaggerated section or the only part that's really unbelievable is the, the numbers we get for the yield of the seed in the good soil. He talks about these huge numbers, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. So for now, let's continue reading Mark chapter 4, and we'll pick up in verse 10, and we'll read those two verses. And when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now don't miss this. Jesus is telling us something important here. Something is happening. This parable is only revealed to Jesus' close followers and to his disciples. We read that in verse 11. He says, To you, his disciples, have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for everything else, it's in parables. It's a mystery. Jesus then quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, and Mark, instead of quoting it like Matthew does in this parable, Mark does a, a little bit of a summary. And the implication is that Jesus knows the unbelievers in Galilee are unwilling to turn from their sin. He knows this. This parable actually marks a change in, in Jesus' public ministry in the Galilean region. From every point after this, chronologically, Jesus only addressed the crowd in public in parables. In Mark chapter 4, further in this chapter, verse 33, we read this, With many such parables Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Now, if it were up to me, I'd probably want to skip these couple of verses because I, I really wrestled with, with what I read. I wrestled with this truth as I prepared this week. Just this question of why would Jesus use parables publicly yet only reveal the secret of the kingdom of God privately to his disciples? It really just seems like a terrible evangelistic plan. And there's kind of a, a twofold answer here as I reached out to some local pastors, as I did some research and commentaries and listened to other preachers on YouTube preach through this. There's kind of a twofold answer here. So why Jesus decided to speak publicly to his disciples to explain the parables and, and use it publicly and let it be a mystery to the public in, in Galilee. The first is this. He saw the hardness of their hearts and the unwillingness to repent and seek forgiveness in the people in Galilee. Now, looking at all the Gospels, not just Mark's Gospel, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
we're going to see how Jesus was treated and the actions of the people in Galilee were towards Jesus up until this parable. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. And more specifically, verses 28 to 29, the people try to throw Jesus off a cliff. That's pretty intense and that's pretty hateful. In Mark chapter 3, the chapter right before this, Jesus' own family tries to silence him. In verses 20 to 21, they think that he is crazy and he's out of his mind. That's his own family. Later in that chapter, Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees say that Jesus is possessed by a demon, Beelzebul, and that this demon is casting out the other demons. So they're attributing the work of God in Jesus to Satan. And Jesus has some pretty harsh words about them blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Mark chapter 12, the spiritual leaders, once again, they're demanding a sign from Jesus. They're saying, show us a sign. And he says to them, there will be no sign given for you are an evil and adulterous generation. Those are powerful words. The people in Galilee, they saw the miracles, they saw Jesus' power, yet they, they did not believe, they did not repent, and they did not follow him. And listen to what Jesus even said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, which again takes place before this parable is given. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So Jesus, who is God, sovereignly knew the hardness of the people's hearts in Galilee. He knew their unwillingness to truly listen and to repent. He didn't just guess. He didn't look at their actions and say, oh, I think they hate me. No, no. Jesus sovereignly knew the hardness of their heart and that they would not respond to the gospel. So that's kind of the first answer. The second one is Jesus used these parables as a sign of judgment. In the Old Testament, parables were often used in, in coming judgments. Here are some examples. We won't really go through them. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, we see the parable of the wasted vineyard. It's this song of God's judgment towards Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 to 14, there's this lament over Israel, and there's a parable in there as well. Probably the most notable one that we most, mostly know, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1-4. to 4, The parable of the poor man's lamb. Nathan comes before King David and tells him a story about a, a rich man who steals the poor man's um, uh, calf, his lamb, to ha have for a feast and sacrifice it. And King David is outraged and he demands justice. And then Nathan actually flips it on King David and says, This is you. This describes your action, what you did with Bathsheba and how you got her husband killed in battle and your sin of adultery. So again, for the people of Galilee, for the, the public who did not know the secrets of the kingdom of God, who were not revealed to them, the parable served as a foreshadowing judgment for their sin and their unbelief. And looking ahead, and we'll get here eventually, they're like the seed that fell along the path in the parable. You know, there's just no effect that the seed is thrown and the birds immediately come and snatch it up. And that's the bad news of the parables for the public. But on the flip side, and a little bit of positive, because that's a lot of negative, for Jesus' followers, the secrets were revealed and given to them. And I believe that in this, this parable in particular, it would have served as an encouragement for Jesus' disciples. We read two chapters later in Mark chapter 6, 
after Jesus is rejected, he sends out the twelve to go and to proclaim. To proclaim the gospel, to proclaim repentance. And I really feel like this parable served as an encouragement for them for their mission. And we'll kind of touch on that a little bit later as well. But for now, let's just keep reading Mark chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 13 and read to uh, verse 20. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while, then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things and other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Here we're, we're kind of revealed what this parable means. This parable shows us the response to the gospel. The issue is not with the sower. The issue is not with the seed, but rather the soil, which is the human heart. We even read that the soil that's prepared by God is supernaturally empowered. It yields crazy amount. Jesus takes time to describe this parable to his disciples. So let's just kind of run through this. I mentioned before, the sower sows the word. A sower is anyone who is faithful to proclaim the word of God, and it's their job to spread it. If you are a Christian, you are a sower. The seed is the word from God. It's God's saving word. It's the gospel. And once again, the only variable, the only thing that changes in this parable is the soil, which again refers to the state of man's heart. And the disciples are told by Jesus how each heart may respond to the gospel by telling them how each soil responds to the seed. So we'll look at the four types of soils right now. Number one, Jesus talks about the roadside soil. These are hard-hearted people. The gospel bounces off their heart without any effect at all. There's no impact. Nothing is absorbed. Really, you could think of the Pharisees and the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel at that time. They hated Jesus and rejected everything that was said by him. In Acts 17, verse 32, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we read that some of the leaders actually sneered at Jesus' resurrection. Think of these hearts as maybe as the fool that's described in Proverbs chapter 1. And I'm not going to go there, but think Proverbs chapter 1, the foolish man. That's the first soil. The second soil that Jesus talks about is the stony soil. And this refers to soil that's blown on top of rocky ground. So the wind kind of takes it and blows it. So on, you know, on the outside or from looking down, the soil looks great. But going under a few inches, it's rock. It's only good at that surface level. And this describes a person who receives the word, and I love that Jesus uses the word joy. They receive the gospel with joy. There's an emotional response, but they truly haven't counted the cost of following Jesus. And it's important to note that just because there's an emotional response to the gospel, it doesn't necessarily mean true conversion. 
Emotions, the sad truth is emotions can be manipulated and there's a danger in modern evangelistic outreaches where you mess with people's emotions, where you play these, these sad minor chords on the guitar or on the synth and it starts to stir people's emotions. And maybe you lead them into saying a prayer. You manipulate them. Hey, you pray this prayer and you'll be okay. Think about it. If there's any sort of emotion that should be shown at conversion, yeah, it's joy, but it is also sadness and brokenness. You should be sad because of your conviction of sins. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. We should always be mourning our sin. So again, the stony soil, those who respond emotionally to the gospel, but there's no foundation. There's no root. There's nothing. They, they don't want to grow spiritually. They never grow spiritually, nor do they really have an interest to. And eventually we read that they, they forsake Jesus. They forsake the gospel because of the pressures of this world and the persecution. And as Christians, we know that sufferings and persecution, it proves our faith and it makes us rely on God and we grow closer and we trust in Him. James chapter 1 talks about this. But for those without a foundation in Christ, they're like the, the foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rains fall and the floods come up and the wind blows against the house, great is its fall. It collapses. In John chapter 6, we read that Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people. Then he withdrew from the crowd because he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him their king. The next day, so Jesus kind of withdrews because he perceives that. The next day, the crowd is still there and they're looking for Jesus. They're, they're wanting more food. Jesus then addresses the crowd. He promises them this true bread from heaven that he can give them and they'll never be hungry again. And they're thinking of a literal, a literal bread, a physical bread to eat. And then Jesus tells them this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We read that the crowd actually grumbles at this because they longed for something physical, not spiritual. And a little bit later in that same story, that cra- the same crowd still there in verse uh, 66 of John's, uh, John chapter 6. We read, After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of these disciples, after hearing Jesus say these words, were probably thinking, this is not what I signed up for. All right? This is not for me. So these stony, soiled hearts have a failure of genuine repentance. It's, it's all emotions. And there's no root. There's no foundation in Christ. The third type of soil we see is the thorny soil. And these are people who hear the word, but the world chokes the word too. And in the Bible, we, we read this expression multiple times, a, a double-minded person. So again, this is someone who can't make up their mind. They, they want Christ. They're saying, yes, yes, I, I want Christ. But at the same time, they're saying, but I, I also want the world. I, I, want, I want my desires of my heart. I, I want this. I want both. Really think of the young rich ruler as someone who has this, this sort of heart. He approaches Jesus asking how to get eternal life. He asks the right question. Good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And he even says to Jesus that he kept all the commandments from birth. In his mind, he thinks he did. And I love it, it says Jesus looking at him and loved him. 
said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. At the end of the story, this man walks away from Jesus sad because he's not able to part with the possessions he has. Uh, his, His love of the world is keeping him from truly following Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62, Jesus is talking about people who have preoccupied hearts, meaning there's already a king in someone's heart. There's already a throne, and it's not empty for Jesus. It's full with someone else sitting on it or something else. He, he says, you know, one person says, well, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me just first go home and bury my father. And the next, well, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me just go, you know, home and, and say goodbye to my family first. Let me, let me do these things first. Jesus is not interested in sharing some of your devotion, some of your heart. Jesus wants it all. I mentioned earlier, just a second ago, he wants to have the throne of your heart to himself. And the gospel calls for a break from the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire of things. All of these things choke out the word. The gospel does not promise the desires of our heart. Jesus never promised that to his disciples. The gospel transforms our heart. It transforms our lives so that we desire to be like Jesus. Our desire becomes what Jesus desires. Our will becomes his will. When you come to Christ, you let go. You surrender everything to follow him. There's no plan B. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read about this man named Demas. It says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Has deserted me. This is someone who is in gospel ministry, but the love of the world took him away. It choked out the world, or it choked out the word, I'm sorry. Judas Iscariot even betrays Jesus for money, his love of money. And the danger with thorns is that they grow slowly. And if untreated, they can be deadly. So someone who thinks they're a Christian, who's, who's kind of growing in the word and reading their Bible, as they're reading their Bible and learning about Jesus, the world is, is slowly like thorns, choking them until they die. Again, they're a double-minded person. It's someone who's unwilling to say, I surrender everything to follow Jesus. These are people that say, I surrender some to follow Jesus. These are the thorny, soiled hearts. Lastly, the good soil. That's the last soil that Jesus describes. These are people who hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit. These are hearts that are humbled, they desire heaven, they desire salvation, deliverance from sin, and they pursue holiness. And here are just some physical characteristics of, of like real-life soil. Ready? Good soil is not natural. Think about your, your own gardens. If you let things grow naturally, if you let it take its course, the soil tends to get harder and weeds seem to infest it. It's been about two or three years in a row where Stephanie has actually been uh, kind of working in our, in our garden at our house because I'm allergic to everything that's outside. So I, I try to avoid that stuff. But every year, there's like rocks that get into the garden. And I'm like, where are these rocks coming from? Again, just birds or, I don't know, the wind's blowing them, and there's just weeds all the time that are infesting it. So good soil, it, it's not natural. The Bible's clear that, that the natural condition of our heart is wicked. It's full of sin. It's totally depraved from God. The second thing is good soil is worked on. God does this. 
He weeds it out. He softens it. And he allows it to grow. A few weeks ago, my friend, Pastor Lenny Van Essendelf, spoke on Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to read those first 10 verses. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And here we're just going to kind of see what God does in our hearts. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, the mind, and were by nature, right, by, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And the, the greatest words you could read in the Bible, the, these, these next two words, but God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. For grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift from God not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, get this, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So the natural condition of our heart is naturally we were children of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses, but God did something. Being rich in mercy softened our hearts. He worked on our hearts. He he, we've been saved through grace, through our faith. Another thing, good soil yields supernatural results. And we read that seeds sowed in this good soil, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The average crop yield in Jesus' day on a high average was about 7-fold. So I mentioned earlier, this was the only thing that in this parable would have made the people be like, what is he talking about, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold? Those, those numbers don't exist. As Christians, God empowers us and equips us to go out and to make disciples. The result of sowing a seed in good soil, it's once again supernatural. Nothing can thwart the divine power of God. God is going to do things in the lives of his people. Some may yield 30-fold results, others 100-fold. God determines that. We as Christians should not be comparing ourselves to others or maybe if you just think of like these mega uh, church pastors and be like, wow, I really wish I was like that person. Look at their yield. They're yielding a hundredfold and I'm only yielding, what, thirtyfold? The parable's not about that. God determines that. We shouldn't be looking to others and being envious or jealous by the work that God's doing in their lives. And there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian And Jesus makes that clear in John 15. He's talking about the branch does not yield fruit. It's cut off and thrown into the fire. So just kind of to wrap it up here. The disciples were encouraged to hear this parable, I believe. So I'll kind of put the Bible here and I'll stand over here for a second. I think that this really empowered the disciples and prepared their heart and mind for when they went out to preach, they would know, listen, it's not me. It's not the news. It's the people's heart. Some are going to reject it. Others may receive it with joy, but then also will fall away because they weren't truly 
uh, repentant and had a true conversion. So I think Jesus is really preparing his disciples for this sort of discouragement coming uh, towards them. They knew their job was to sow the seed, not change the hearts of people. That's God's job. So again, what does this parable mean for us, New Village Church, in, in 2020? Just three quick implications. The first is followers of Christ sow seeds. We spread the gospel being obedient to the Great Commission. If you are not making disciples, you really have to ask yourself, am I a Christian? That's like me saying, yeah, I'm a baseball player. And I, and I go out and I, and I join a team and the coach says, all right, you're up. And then I'm like, no, I don't, I don't play baseball. Yeah, but you're a baseball player. Yeah, I, I'm a player, but I'm just going to sit and watch. It's, it's not for me. It's, it's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. So followers of Christ sow seeds. They spread the gospel. They evangelize. They're obedient to the Great Commission, which is our mission, our jobs as Christians. The second, followers of Christ sow seeds everywhere, regardless of soil. Only God knows people's hearts. We should never stop evangelizing just because we think it's not working. We shouldn't look and say, oh, this person's an atheist. They're going to be the hard soil. I'm not even going to try. We don't know their heart. Only God does. And Jesus sovereignly knew the people's hearts. His disciples didn't. Same is true. God does. We, we don't know. We're told to go out and make disciples of all nations. Lastly, followers of Christ rely on God for growth. Only God can sovereignly soften hearts. It's not our job. And I think sometimes that takes the pressure off that as Christians, yeah, we go out, we sow the seed, we, we share the gospel, and guess what? Some people are going to reject it. Some people are, are not going to receive it well. Some will listen. Others might receive it and, and, and will actually have a true conversion. But that's not our job to change their hearts. So don't be discouraged if people don't receive the word. And if you're going out and you're preaching, you're like, man, it, no, no, one's, no one's affected by this. You don't know that. Only God knows that. So again, parents, never give up on your kids. There might be some of you watching, you're like, man, I've tried for years and, and my kid is just not receiving the gospel. I don't know what to do. Keep sowing the seed. And maybe teenagers, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe your parents. Keep sowing that seed. Or maybe it's your friends at school. Keep sowing the seed. That is your job. That's our mission. And Newville Church, do not give up on this community around us. We have houses right out our front door. Keep sowing the seed. God does the work. He changes hearts. Let's pray. Dear God, we just praise you this morning. God, we're thankful that, that you sent us your son Jesus who willingly came and died for us. God, I pray that we can just uh, be encouraged by what we were reminded by Jesus about this morning, that our job, our mission in this world is to make disciples, to sow the seed. God, I pray that <clears throat> if that's not something we're doing, God, I ask for repentance. I, I ask for, for boldness for those to repent and, and, and be empowered to share the gospel. God, I pray that you will continue to use us to just spread the good news around our community here at New Village Church. And God, I also pray that maybe today we can take some time and truly evaluate where we're at spiritually. Some of us might be thinking we're in the good soil. 
when really we're in the thorny soil or the rocky soil. So God, I pray that we're able to just evaluate our relationship with you and we're able, again, to just take some time and ask for forgiveness if we need to today. We thank you so much for sending your son once again to die on the cross for us and showing us love. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to sing one more song.